You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 2nd, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In an economy as large and complex as the United States, how can we tell when our efforts at energy transition are working? For example, how can we even calculate our carbon emissions in a year? And if we find that emissions have gone down, how do we know why they fell? In other words, how can we tell the difference between the economy getting more efficient or simply slowing down, or emissions falling because we switched from a high-carbon fuel to a low-carbon fuel? And even when we're sure that something has become more efficient, for example, that a certain number of people replaced old cars with newer ones that have better fuel economy, how can we calculate the energy savings, especially if we suspect that people might actually just be using more energy because it's now cheaper? A phenomenon that energy analysts call the rebound effect, or sometimes the Jevons paradox, per the observation in 1865 by English economist William Stanley Jevons, that increased efficiency of coal use led to increased consumption of coal. How should we calculate the future cost of damage due to climate change in order to evaluate a possible investment in stopping it? And that question opens up another whole can of worms about how we should choose the discount rates we use in evaluating investments. Can economic theory actually help us make good decisions and form good policy to help us stop climate change? Or are notions like the social cost of carbon doomed to be just interesting academic ideas that we can't find a way to actually apply in the domain of political economy? And then, once we've decided on a discount rate and calculated the climate damage and figured out how to prevent it in an economically sound way, how should we act given how little uncertainty we actually have about the future of the climate and of the trajectory of energy transition itself? These are all difficult questions, but our guest today has tackled them all and published papers on them extensively, including an acclaimed 2015 book titled Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet. Gernot Wagner is a research associate and lecturer at Harvard University, who previously also taught at Columbia University and the NYU Stern School of Business, and who has worked as an economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Currently, as the co-director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program, he is exploring the potential for geoengineering as a cost-effective way to combat climate change. So we'll talk about that in this episode as well. He's a prolific writer, researcher, and speaker, and I have followed his research for years, so it's truly a pleasure to finally have him on the show. Then, in the news segment of this episode, we'll talk about a surprising decision by the utility regulator in Arizona. We'll look at several programs designed to figure out how much energy consumers can save simply by making different decisions about their activities. We'll review the announcements by 13 major cities around the world that will partially or completely do away with cars in major city centers in favor of walking and biking. We'll note a surprising decision by the New Jersey legislature, and we'll update the ongoing saga of the failed V 
D.C. Summer Nuclear Plant in South Carolina. But first, our conversation with Granat Wagner, recorded March 16, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Granat, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. I don't know how you would describe it, but I think I'd characterize the focus of much of your previous research in energy as counting the uncountable, or at least counting what's very difficult to count. You've looked into the embedded energy and manufactured goods, the so-called rebound effect, the various ways of pricing carbon and climate risk, and most recently, the various reasons for falling emissions in the U.S. In all of these cases, trying to tease apart various factors that are very difficult, if not impossible, to really separate. So I'm curious. I mean, what drives you to explore these kinds of questions? I guess counting the uncountable is a good way of putting it. I've never really thought about it that way, I guess. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's sometimes tough to finish a research project, because it, in fact, isn't impossible to do. (laughs) Yeah, there's something to this. And of course, you know, sort of as a researcher, I guess, one way of putting it is that's where the interesting stuff is. It's called research for a reason. You search, you search, and you search again. Right. <laughs> there's a bit of that. But then, yeah, right? So the examples you mentioned, they are some of the more, I'd like to think at least, some of the more interesting questions when it comes to energy policy, environmental policy more widely. And this sort of the stuff that isn't top of the mind usually. So it's the kinds of things that take a bit of digging and you might call them second order effects. Right. Or of course, once you have uncovered them and they turn out to be huge, then you know try to draw attention to something that matters more than most people thought. Right. Well, okay, fair enough. So I think I'd like to begin by discussing your your recent paper on falling emissions in the U.S., and then maybe we can talk about a few of your other explorations into these uncountable problems like decompositions of various things and climate and carbon pricing. And then maybe we can wrap up with your research focus right now, which is on solar geoengineering. Does that sound like a good plan? Sound like a great plan. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's dive in. So from 2007 to 2013, U.S. CO2 emissions dropped 10%, and there has been a lot of discussion and speculation about why that happened. Lots of analysts have attributed that drop primarily to the fact that many power plants switched from coal to natural gas. But after doing a decomposition of the various factors, you and your co-authors found that renewables and changes in demand each played roughly as large a role as switching to gas. So can you tell us a bit about the methodology used in this analysis? Happy to. So yes, this was frankly to us at least, so my colleagues at EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, and me, sort of a pretty striking result in the sense that there is sort of this common knowledge that a switch from coal to natural gas contributed to this drop in CO2 emissions in the U.S. between around 2007 and 2013 or so, and has contributed so much, right, sort of a 10% drop in emissions that, you know, we have achieved certain climate goals despite not really having the appropriate climate policy. And once we started digging a bit and basically trying to decompose this decrease, and that's what it is, it's a decomposition analysis, that's the formal name for it. And basically try to disentangle the effects of both that coal to natural gas switch, which of course was important, was there, right? Fracking contributed to a decrease in CO2 emissions, did in fact lead to an increase in methane emissions, methane leakage from leaking natural gas pipelines and so on. That's a completely different problem. Right. <laughs> but CO2 did go down. So thank you, natural gas. Right. And now it turns out there were two other main factors. And you already mentioned that 
Lots of folks, of course, have pointed to the fact that the recession happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once Lehman Brothers took a nosedive and the world economy and, you know, Bear Stearns, the world economy followed, yes, emissions went down because the economy crashed, right? right. <laughs> you know, that's not the way to do it, turns out. If you want emissions reductions, you probably shouldn't want to do it by crashing the economy. <laughs> now, then there's this third factor, renewables, which is, you know, presumably the good stuff. More sun, more wind, more hydro for that matter. Nuclear, of course, is part of this mix as well, or could be seen to be part of the mix, right? Uh, Carbon-free electricity. Now, we disentangle renewables on the one hand, nuclear on the other. We do keep that separate. And it turns out renewables themselves did contribute to around a third of that overall decrease in emissions. So to be Completely honest, it wasn't complete news. I can tell you that after the fact, so after we published this, someone pointed out to me that I believe it's page 466, <laughs> figure 7.23 of the <laughs> of the economic report of the president in 2017, so already right, a year or so ago basically pointed out something similar, pointed out the fact that renewables did in fact contribute about as much as the coal to natural gas switch. We weren't the first ones to uncover this. Now, of course, you know, the way research goes, we started writing this thing in about, you know, 2015 or so. So we did not have that report in front of us while we were writing the paper. Sure. But still, despite that, despite the fact that everyone, of course, reads these economic reports to the president and everyone would point to figure 723 immediately and know that this thing has happened that renewables have in fact contributed as much as as the coal to natural gas switch you know that's the main contribution of our paper making sure and demonstrating that this switch the coal to gas switch was important but was in fact only one of three factors the demand being the second and rapid renewable deployment being the third I guess I'm wondering if there was an important methodological difference in the way that you went about your study, you know, just trying to understand why your results differed from so many of the previous claims that it was really just sort of all about gas and demand destruction, that renewables didn't play so much of a role. So frankly, we had more detailed data. That was the real difference. So our data allowed us to disentangle renewables. And, you know, for all I know, some of the prior studies, too, could have done this, but essentially they weren't looking for it. They were looking for the impact from natural gas. And, you know, in some sense, we were, in fact, looking for other factors, too, and were focused on renewable deployment and managed to disentangle the effect in such a way to, in fact, demonstrate that renewables played as large a role as those other two factors. Mm-hmm. And what data source did you use that was more discreet? Frankly, it's all publicly available. There's you know, no secrets here. So this is digging into some of the EIA energy statistics and, frankly, simply not aggregating immediately, looking at the primary data sources, renewables, deployment for both right, wind and sun, solar energy called out independently, nuclear called out independently, and then, of course, the various types of coal and various types of gas, as well as petroleum and some other factors, of course. And just looking at the disaggregated data set using this decomposition analysis allowed us to focus on all three factors or identify all three factors. Huh. Pretty cool. Okay. So let's move on to the so-called rebound effect. 
a lot of analysts, particularly those who favor transition pathways that lead us to producing more energy in the future and not less, have asserted that investments in energy efficiency don't actually result in reduced energy demand. They just make it cheaper for us to use energy, and as a result, we use more of it. Cut the price of gasoline in half and people will drive twice as much, or so the argument goes. Now, this claim about the backfire hypothesis or the rebound effect has been made a lot, and a lot of people have disputed it, but I haven't seen much really good research designed to prove or disprove it. So what did your research find? Are investments in efficiency worthwhile, and how much of a rebound effect is there really? Good question. First of all, yes, investments in efficiency are worthwhile, frankly, because inefficiency is never a good thing. Right? <laughs> so You'd think that would be obvious, but you know, if you look at this debate around rebound effect, apparently it's not obvious at all. Uh, fair enough, yes. And frankly, you know, sort of both sides on this are a bit guilty here. So it turns out that, you know, the rebound effect itself, I mean, the fact that when more energy efficient technologies come in and they make certain services, you know, driving, let's say, cheaper. Right. So, you know, the car itself, the more energy efficient car might be more expensive, typically is more expensive, so you make the investment. But once you have the vehicle sitting in your driveway, it's cheaper to drive any given mile. So the fact that you then would drive more as a result is pretty obvious. So you know, there's no secret here. So yes, the rebound effect theoretically is always there and empirically too. When we look at it, we do find a rebound effect. Now, there's a big distinction between rebound and what you called before backfire. Okay. So a backfire effect is a rebound effect over 100%, which basically means you don't just drive slightly more, you drive so much more that overall you'd use more energy than you did before. Right. So just to be clear, that in itself still wouldn't be bad. So presumably you like visiting your grandma more often now. Uh -huh. So you do. Right, right. So you don't just drive more because you're forced to. Yet no one's forcing you to drive more, presumably. You do it because it's cheaper. And, you know, you get jollies out of driving or at least getting places. Right. So you do more of it. Right. So one take of this, of the rebound effect, is to say, look, overall, it is welfare enhancing, to use a fancy economic term. It's good. It's good for you. You get more utility and more jollies out of this. So you do more of it. So again, back to my first point, energy inefficiency is never good. So now you have a more energy efficient gadget, vehicle. You use it more. You drive more. And that too is good overall. Now, okay, all that said, so of course, what about climate change? What about the environmental impacts? And there, of course, so, okay, as an economist, I'm obligated to tell you that the best possible way to incorporate the negative carbon externality is to put an appropriate price on CO2 and get out of the way. Right. Now, right. as a thinking human being, I can tell you that that's not the full answer. And no economist would seriously tell you that that's the full answer. It's not sufficient to do that. It would be fantastic if we finally got around to do that, to price CO2 appropriately, to price the negative externality. Of course, we don't. We haven't done that yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the driving more, so you now have this more efficient car, you drive more, that driving uses energy. Energy production causes emissions, pollution, and that is costly. 
So now the big question is, is the additional jollies you get out of driving more, is that not outweighed by the negative effects of the pollution of you driving more? Right. And frankly, that's, of course, where numbers matter. And so this now is a few years back, but I've looked at some of those numbers. And frankly, you'd have to make fairly heroic assumptions around the size of the negative externality to believe that overall, the rebound effect would result in a loss in welfare, a loss in well-being. So yes, people drive more now. Yes, there are emissions associated with the driving, but those emissions or the cost of those emissions just isn't large enough to overwhelm the positive effects itself. And huh. now, taking one step further back here, the big, big question is, so how big is the rebound effect right. to begin with? Right. right? Or in other words, do we decrease emissions by deploying employing more energy-efficient technologies, or do we, in fact, increase emissions? If that's all you care about, sort of forget overall well-being, forget that you get jollies out of driving more, or having you know more light available because it's suddenly cheaper, and so on and so forth. If you just care about emissions, what's the effect? Mm-hmm. That's now, of course, where it matters whether the rebound is greater than 100%, whether you have true backfire, or whether the rebound effect is, in fact, much closer to zero, frankly, than to 100%. Right. Okay, so now you can dive more deeply into what versions of the rebound effect are there. And frankly, the sort of direct rebound effect of driving becomes cheaper once you have a more efficient car isn't all that large, right? So it is somewhere between 10, 20, 30% or so. Estimates differ. It's not 100. And there's such a thing as called indirect rebound effects, right? So if you have a more fuel-efficient car, driving now is cheaper. It means your income, your wealth just increased, relatively speaking, because you can do more with your money because doing any one particular thing is now slightly cheaper. Right. You'll have more disposable income. Exactly. That's the income effect in a sense, indirect effect. Okay. And that too, it's not going to be greater than 100%. There are actually some good reasons to believe sort of theoretically why it can't be. And you add it all up and it turns out that the sum isn't in fact as large as the two individual pieces put together because there's some replacement between those two. You either use the money for driving or you use it for other stuff. So at the end of the day, those two things put together, the immediate rebound, if you will, isn't large enough to cause a backfire effect. Okay. Most likely. Some uncertainty, of course, as usual. Now, okay, so one last thing on the rebound. Yeah. (laughs) Now, of course, there's this much, much broader question then around economic growth in general and sort of productivity growth in general. So if we figure out better ways of putting together widgets, producing certain things, we make the economy more productive overall, as in do more things with less energy. Well, what does that do overall? It leads to, in the long run, to more economic growth. Right. People become richer. And, you know, the richer we get, the more energy we use and so on and so forth. At least, you know, for the vast majority of the world population. Yeah. And this is sort of this long run macroeconomic 
effect. Talk about uh, counting the uncountable. I mean, uh, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, frankly, some people now still call that rebound. I would actually disagree and say that's just not rebound. That's basically that's economic growth. That's productivity growth. That factor of economic growth would have been there without any efficiency gains. Correct, yeah. but of course, efficiency gains help that help sure. economic growth, and there too, right? On the one hand, I would say, look, that's clearly positive right. to begin with. Right now, on the other, if all you care about is CO two emissions, well, in the long run, those CO two emissions just increased above and beyond where they would have been without the energy efficiency improvement. Now, again, I would insist that that's not rebound effect. That's economic growth. That's productivity growth. It's other things. But yes, what it leads to is that energy efficiency interventions themselves simply aren't going to solve climate change for us. Now, they're still good. We should do them. But we can't rely on making stuff more efficient as the sole sort of intervention here to decrease overall emissions, because in the long run, emissions may actually go up. Because of just economic growth, you mean, or... Yes, right, because we learn to do more things with less energy. Well, and the more things we do, the more productive we become, the more the economy grows. And, you know, as long as, and this sort of goes back to the carbon pricing, if we have a misguided market forces basically pointing in the wrong direction, so not pricing CO2 emissions properly, well, we'll be emitting too much. And energy efficiency interventions themselves simply can't do that. We need to, in fact, price emissions. Right, right. Okay. So, I mean, what sort of quantified numbers do we have for the rebound effect? I really don't know. Like, what's the actual empirical data on rebound? Is it 30%? Is it 80%? I just don't know. So numbers differ widely, I can tell you, but it's actually like, this is now a few years back when we did this, but we tried hard and we couldn't find rebound estimates above 60%. And frankly, most of them were somewhere between 10 and 30 or so. Hmm. So in other words, you decrease emissions by a certain amount. Well, you know, if 30% is the right number, 30% of that emissions decrease is nullified by the rebound effect. So in some sense, if all you cared about were the emissions decreases, the absolute emissions decreases, what you, you know, really should do is make this target even tighter by those 30% in order to get back to where you want it to be in the first place. Now, of course, again, as an economist, I will tell you that's not the overall target to begin with. So you shouldn't just care about the CO2 emissions. They matter too, of course. But it's not just about instituting a standard in order to decrease emissions by a certain amount and only that amount. It's about sort of increasing welfare overall, which does mean decreasing CO2 emissions. It means pricing CO2 emissions properly. But the fact that the rebound isn't greater than 100% by itself means that energy efficiency interventions themselves are in fact a positive step in the right direction. That's one. But two, you know, they're not enough. They're not the whole thing. We do need to price the negative externality. We need to price CO2 emissions. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes, 
with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In a 3-2 to two vote, the Arizona Corporation Commission, or ACC, the utility regulator in Arizona, rejected the energy resource plan submitted by the largest investor-owned utilities in the state for the first time ever, citing concerns that they relied too heavily on natural gas and did not adequately consider the potential to meet future demand at a lower cost with renewables, mainly solar, storage, and energy efficiency. Intervention by the Navajo Nation, which is working hard to find new jobs for workers who will be displaced by the closure of the massive coal-fired Navajo generating station, along with consumer and business groups and clean energy experts, was an essential factor in the ACC's decision. Among other findings, an analysis by the interveners on the plan from APS, one of the major utilities, showed that renewables, energy storage, and efficiency could avoid the need to build about 4,000 of the 5,500 megawatts of new gas-fired power and save customers about $300 million. In its 15-year resource plan, APS had included virtually no new utility-scale renewables. Item 2. These aren't really news per se, but I'd like to highlight five recent stories about how consumers are trying to reduce their climate impact and some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. First, an article from Mike Grunwald, who was our guest in the very first... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.